Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, even with Ottawa announcing nearly 1,900 new EV chargers for Metro Vancouver, why are we so far behind in approving charging stations? And temporary foreign workers hit record levels in BC and Canada. Is this the new normal? And Premier David Eby joins us as we discuss the $440 million in new funding for cancer care. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus in on a story we highlighted just a couple of days ago. The Vancouver Fraser Port Authority is backing down from a controversial program to replace older trucks, uh, which which are servicing the port for at least uh, another nine months, to reassess its plans. Um, To be very blunt, I think they've backed down. Um, It's the third time the port is postponing the rolling truck program, which is supposed to begin April 3rd, to phase out trucks more than 12 years or old to improve air quality. Uh, the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority was putting the onus on independent owners and operators to replace the vehicle. Uh, joining us now to talk a little bit about the program and the fact that the Vancouver uh, Fraser Port Authority has backed down is Gagan Singh. He's a spokesperson for the United Truckers Association. Uh, Mr. Singh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Mr. Joel. Thanks for having us. All right, so let's get to the point here. What convinced them to back down in your mind? Uh the biggest thing is that the four member parliaments have written a letter to their own federal minister. But on top of that, uh, the biggest thing is uh, the big number of folks in in our meeting. That also forced them. And also on top of that, the intervention of federal conservative leader, Peter Polyev, that also bring them down to such position that Port of Vancouver have to back up from that point. So for our listeners, let's let's just uh, uh, just take it back just for a second. You said you had a meeting, and I think during our last conversation, about 2,000 people, 2,000 truckers uh, showed up to that meeting, right? It was, it was not only 2,000 truckers. It, there were various community folks. So let's say uh, BC Gurdwara Council, it have eight Gurdwara societies from New Westminster, Surrey, and uh, Abbotsford, their representatives were there, two Kabaddi Federation and their respective team members, they were there too. Uh, farmers from Abbotsford were, were there too. So there was a, a very big crowd, especially the community folks who really understand that this is a, an unfair policy by the Port of Vancouver. So you were able to galvanize a significant amount of people in the South Asian community uh, to apply political pressure, direct or indirect, uh, to the port, uh, is my assessment of what you've just said. Here's my question to you. Now, the overall arching issue of, of just air quality and the fact that they want to phase out trucks more than 12 years old to improve air quality in the Lower Mainland in British Columbia. Uh, These are all independent operators, these truck drivers. Uh, I think last time you and I chatted, you you said to buy a truck today is about $250,000 or so? $225,000 plus the interest cost on the truck. On that. And then then you have the monthly uh, parking fees, uh, upkeep, mechanical, and gas, which is is significant as well. Uh, Do you think... There should be an onus because the port has said we're going to reassess the plan. My gut tells me it says backing away for the third time. Um, do you think this onus should be put on truck drivers or do you think there's other ways to deal with, with air quality? Yeah, before they pursue further further, they need to elaborate more on what's going on in Canada about the pollution stuff. So I'm having a document uh, which is the news from CBC News posted on November 4th, 2021. It's saying Canada is weaning itself off thermal coal, but keeps shipping it elsewhere. And by this news, I pull out and I have digged out something more. So in Alberta, 
they are using coal to get thermal to get electricity to run the thermal power so plant. I get where you're coming that from. Will, so before you, before you move, I, I don't have a lot of time. I just want to get to the point here. What you're saying basically is we're shipping thermal coal, uh, which is, comes from uh, the United States, and to a certain degree, some of it here and the Met coal that comes out of here. We're shipping coal out of this port or the uh, west coast of British Columbia. We don't worry about that, but somehow truck drivers are being asked to uh, purchase vehicles and to carry the financial burden of climate change when these are working people and it's not fair. That's my assessment of what you're just saying to me it's right now. You're right. Mo- moving forward, though, Mr. Singh, moving forward, the, the port says they're going to reassess this. If they reassess and want to come back and do the same thing, are we just going to have the same protests again? Uh, first of all, there won't be such kind of, we haven't got such kind of federal support from both parties, either mm-hmm. ruling party and opposition. They both are supporting us. Mm-hmm. First thing. Secondly, in the letter by itself uh, from the port side, they have mentioned they will be considering new technology as well as federal and provincial fleet greening programs. So which means that it's something about the money measures too. And even though on top of that, from our perspective, we are not against the environment. But our only concern is that we are ready for the opacity test. We are ready for anything. But the only thing is it should be processed across the board, not only that they should target us or penalize us. Let's say if they replace only 2% of the total BC trucks, but 90, 98% are, are the same ones, mm-hmm. and there's no regulation on that, what will be the impact? It's nothing. Mr. Singh, I appreciate your time. We don't have a lot of time today. I appreciate uh, you making time for us. Look forward to chatting with you in the future. Thank you so much. No worries. It's our pleasure to have a chat with you. Thanks. Well, let's switch from trucks to electric vehicles. Well, for Canadians who want to switch to electric, a lack of infrastructure uh, and real concerns about range are holding them back when it comes to purchasing electric vehicles. Range anxiety consistently ranks among Canadians, uh, for Canadians, as one of the top barriers to uh, purchasing an electric vehicle. Of course, that is slowly changing. Uh, In Canada, we have roughly 16,000 EV chargers uh, across this country. Now, Natural Resources Canada says uh, our country will probably need 200,000 public EV chargers by 2030. Now, today, Jonathan Wilkinson, who is the Minister of Natural Resources, announced that the federal government will spend $19 million for the installation of 2,400 EV chargers, of which 1,800 will be installed around Metro Vancouver. Joining me to discuss today's announcement and the long road to building an EV charging network in our country is Jonathan Wilkinson. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I know you've made an announcement today uh, in regards uh, to the installation of up to 2,400 EV chargers, about 1,800 of them, which will be installed in the Metro Vancouver uh, area. Uh, this is, one would argue, just to start. I mean, uh, how significant will this be in regards to the need that's out there for British Columbia and the rest of Canada? Well, I think it's significant. It's, uh, as you say, 2,400 new chargers, um, and that builds upon, um, you know, many thousands of chargers that are already out there. British Columbia is actually leading Canada in terms of the deployment of infrastructure, and that's partly because the federal government's been involved, but also the province of B.C. has been involved. But today was um, done in partnership with a number of developers who are actually ensuring that the buildings that they're building are going to be capable of of, uh, charging electric vehicles, which are which are really the future of transportation in the context of fighting climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, what role or what what position do you think, uh, for the federal government itself, what what kind of pressure do you think you can put to, on the provincial government in this case? Because in many cases, a lot of this also has to do with building codes and uh, encouraging, uh, you know, retrofitting older buildings as well. Uh, talk to me a little bit about working with uh, the provincial government, getting some of these older buildings uh, retrofitted with potential charges as well? Well, it's, it's a really good question. Um, obviously, it's, it's easier with new buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, when you uh, develop this from the beginning, it's obviously both simpler and, and less expensive. But we are going to need uh, to see uh, retrofits of existing building stock uh, for the purpose of actually having chargers, but also to improve the energy efficiency of the building envelope. We are developing... Um, a new building code, uh, the, the national building code, that we uh, obviously then hand to the provinces and ask them to implement. British Columbia has been very collaborative in the, in the discussions that we've been having. I, I think that um, 
we are very likely to see British Columbia um, be helpful from a from a, um, a building code perspective in terms of making sure that this moves forward. They have the, the same objectives as the federal government in terms of addressing climate change, but doing so in a manner that addresses affordability and and uh, that creates good good jobs for, for folks who live here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to confirm, uh, of the 1,800 or so, these are mostly level two chargers, which are the slower chargers. Uh, how many of them are level three chargers, which are uh, obviously faster? So the bulk of them are level two. I, off the top of my head, I don't have the split, but but the bulk of them are level two. There are some level threes in here. Um, um, and and as you as you say, um, they're, they're kind of different purposes, right? Like if you're at a parking lot or you're somewhere where you're leaving your car for a few hours, the level twos are just fine. If you're actually needing a fast charge, um, and that's why you see level threes at, at many of the gas stations, for example, um, you need a obviously a quicker charge. Um, and so uh, so we are trying to in the planning we're doing with respect to the rollout, thinking about you know the the, the proportion that you actually need that are level twos or level threes. Obviously, people who actually fuel their car at home um, need something that that, is, that can be done overnight, which is even slower. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the United States, just recently, there was an announcement. Uh, it may have been earlier this week or, or, or last week, but Tesla saying that they're opening up their network by 2024 to other um, uh, car manufacturers to uh, at least have some sort of industry standard or working together in regards to making their EV chargers available. Has there been any sort of conversation of, of that sort here in Canada? Absolutely. Um, I mean, standardization is, is critically important uh, as we move forward. Certainly, we are having that with the auto manufacturers, just as the Americans are. Um, we are also having it with the Americans. Uh, it is really important in terms of the technology deployment perspective to be able to have interoperability on uh, on a range of things, including the, the charging infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the broader conversation about EVs and subsidies in regards to purchasing EVs, uh, British Columbia has had a subsidy. There's been a federal subsidy as well. Um, the, it has been reduced uh, to a certain degree here in British Columbia, only based on uh, the the... Uh, those purchasing vehicles of 50000 or under now received that subsidy, not above that. Uh, but is the desire from the federal government to continue with a federal government subsidy when it comes to EV purchases at this point? At this point, yes. We, uh, we just renewed our um, commitment to that in the last budget. Um, we provide up to $5,000 for, uh, for buying a new electric or, or other alternative fuel vehicles. Um, and uh, and we will continue to do so until the time that we see that the price difference between electric and internal combustion engines essentially um, largely go away. A lot of that is related to manufacturing volumes. Um, at the end of the day, you know, if you manufacture a car and you only make ten of them, and you or you make two million of them, um, the cost is very very different. And and as we're in this transitional period where electric vehicle sales are ramping up, there is a need for us to ensure that there is affordability such that we see deployment. But over the long term, obviously, there is no intention to continue to subsidize once we get to the point where they are cost competitive. Uh, we certainly know uh, the long term, uh, sort of the feasibility of, of obviously electric vehicles. And I think everybody who wants to purchase a vehicle in the future are already thinking about potentially going electric. How important is the near term now, the next four to five years in regards to the, the EV population in the context of these chargers that you announced today? How important is it in regards to just driving those sales and getting people increasingly look at EV as the, as the way to go? Well, it's incredibly important um, as, as we move forward. I mean, certainly, I think one of the, the barriers to major deployment of EVs has often been the lack of infrastructure and people being worried about, you know, will they be able to actually find a place to charge up their cars? I think in British Columbia, that is less and less the case, but certainly in some provinces and territories, that remains a barrier to deployment. We in Canada have made the commitment, uh, just as many of the auto manufacturers have actually made, um, that we won't be able to buy an internal combustion engine after 2035 in this country, which means we really do need to see an acceleration of deployment, which means you really need to see a build-out of infrastructure so that people are comfortable doing that. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's something that you know, today was all about. Minister Wilkinson, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Not at all. Thank you. In 2021, 
more than 30,000 people in BC uh, were newly diagnosed with cancer and more than 11,000 died from the disease. It has a tremendous impact on all British Columbians and especially families. Well, today the BC government announced a new 10-year plan to expand cancer care uh, as the province's populations continues to grow and age. Now, the province will make an initial $440 million investment that will go towards improving cancer care as well as research. It will also go to improve pay for oncologists and cancer care professionals as well as uh, money will go towards Indigenous support positions uh, as well. Joining me now to discuss today's announcement is Premier David Eby. Premier, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, the announcement today of $440 million, how much of a priority was this for your government uh, in regards to the funding? There has been some criticism in the past about uh, wait times for cancer care. Is that what was driving this decision today? Well, we have a, a serious issue in the province of uh, a number of people during the pandemic put off uh, routine screening and uh, and they're starting to show up in the system in really significant numbers. Our population is growing quickly and the population that we have in the province is aging. So we're seeing more and more cancer diagnosis. So we're really starting to see the system strain under those impacts. And uh, we've had some real warning signs through the summer and the fall of people waiting longer than they should for an appointment with an oncologist or for treatment. And so this uh, 10-year cancer plan is really a response to that. This is the first phase of funding, which includes uh, funding for more oncologists, more doctors that do this kind of work in medical professionals, testing and screening, but also a significant investment, uh, over $100 million into research. Um, it, it has two functions. One is to ensure we stay on the cutting edge here in British Columbia in terms of cancer treatment, but the other is it helps recruit the best oncologists from around the world uh, to come and work in BC when they're also able to do uh, clinical trials and uh, and use new uh, methods of treatment here in BC and do research on that as part of their work. How much of the funding will be will be made uh, immediately uh, to the cancer agency? Uh, well, there are, there are two uh, pieces um, uh, of this, uh, and uh, part of it is immediate funding for uh, BC Cancer. Uh, to make sure that they're able to hire up the doctors so people get the care they need uh, right away. And uh, the recruitment of new oncologists does take time, but they're ready to go. They've already recruited 70 new doctors with funding that we've provided to them previously, and so those doctors are uh, are at work and providing care right now. But the other part of the funding goes to the BC Cancer Foundation, and, uh, and that research money uh, will be available for researchers to deploy in, uh, in uh, testing new methods of treatment and uh, in clinical trials with cancer patients mm-hmm. right away as well. This is immediate funding. There has been past criticism that um, that goes back all the way to 2001 for many who've worked within uh, the BC Cancer Agency that there's been greater focus on budget management uh, because so much of the responsibility was handed over to health authorities and less emphasis on medicine and science. Um, do you think there is a, uh, a need for a sort of a deeper structural look in regards to the cancer agency and how it can be best used and utilized in regards to the science as well? Well, it, it's really important to me, and I'm sure it's important to British Columbians, uh, that um, British Columbia leads on cancer care. Our outcomes are good. You know, we have the second uh, uh, best outcomes in the country. Um, we'd obviously like that to be number one. We're second to Alberta. Um, but uh, but that's positive news for anyone who's facing a cancer diagnosis in BC. This is a, a good place to get uh, diagnosis and treatment. Um, but we do see the strains uh, in the system. We see the strains of BC cancer uh, of a growing population of, uh, of the number of people uh, seeing a diagnosis because they're living longer. And so making sure that they have that cutting-edge care is absolutely vital. The benefit of having an agency like BC Cancer is that they can pair up with the uh, Cancer Foundation and, and deliver that uh, research as well as the care at the same time. And that was something that I heard from some of the oncologists who were there today, how important that is to them uh, in their work and how cancer treatment changes so quickly. Um, you know, in, in uh, my own family, uh, uh, lost uh, one of my cousins to childhood leukemia uh, about 26 years ago, and, and if she had faced that cancer today, she'd still be alive because of the advances in, in treatment of childhood leukemia uh, now. And so we, we need to make sure British Columbians benefit from that research and that work. 
Uh, do you think uh, there is equity in regards to treatment? You, as you know very well, we're we're a massive province uh, uh, from rural communities to Metro Vancouver. Here, do you think the access to treatment is equitable, or is there more work need to be done in this province? Yeah, that's that's a really important issue. So uh, the the announcement was held today at the. Uh, at the BC Cancer uh, Institute in Vancouver on 10th Avenue. Uh, it's a, it's a world-leading center, um, but for many people, uh, they live a long way away from 10th Avenue in Vancouver uh, in our province, and when they get a cancer diagnosis and when you're sick, the last thing you want to do is uh, extended travel. So part of this uh, 10-year plan and part of the work that's already been underway is establishing regional uh, treatment centers, uh, so the capital process is, is underway in parallel with this, a second cancer center in Surrey at the new Surrey Hospital, uh, new cancer treatment centers in Nanaimo and Kamloops mm-hmm. uh, so that people can get treatment there. And then uh, further out throughout the province, uh, rural centers where people can get uh, chemotherapy without having to do extended travel. But also part of today's funding is for to support people with travel costs. So when they do have to come to Vancouver for specialized treatment, that, that their family isn't burdened with the travel costs so that they can get to the hospital and get the care they need. Final question to you, and, and I'm going to step away just in regards to today's announcement, but you spent a lot of time in Ottawa uh, talking health care, and uh, I'm just showing my age. I've been through a few pri- uh, premiers in this in this province, and all of them in some way have had to deal with <laughs> health care and the challenges of health care. Um, and it sure. always comes down to needing more dollars uh, in, in many cases. Do you think there is room for innovation in a public system? We're always worried about private sector being involved in the public system or we we water down the public system. But I I say this knowing every time I've heard a premier needing to go to Ottawa, needing to get more money or asking for more money, but is there room for innovation in our system? And do you think the healthcare system uh, is innovative enough, the public system, or do you think more work needs to be done in regards to driving uh, better numbers for us, making it more efficient, ultimately still providing the care, but that deep need for innovation in the system and perhaps some disruption as well. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think, you know, that comes to mind for many British Columbians when I think about, you know, uh, uh, how we use our phones, for example, as, uh, as health devices as much as telephones these days or how people want to have more control over their medical records and, and do their own uh, um sort of uh, analysis of what their health needs are based on their own uh, information. Uh, and, uh, and I think there's huge opportunity for innovation in our province. Uh, one of the uh, pieces we're talking about with the federal government is about standardizing uh, uh, health data mm-hmm. uh, so that British Columbians have access to their medical records and their health records and their information so they're able to use it as they would like to use it. Uh, and also so we can track how we're doing compared with other places and find out where there's innovations that we should be learning from, where they're getting better outcomes, where they're getting through faster. And also we, uh, we are learning from the private sector uh, in BC. Uh, we do have um, uh, some private clinics, um, and those specialized uh, clinics, uh, many of uh, which we've brought into the public uh, system, especially around imaging, um, by having uh, clinics that are focused on one specific procedure or one specific uh, aspect of care, can provide uh, greater efficiency and better outcomes. And so there's no reason why uh, you need a parallel system of health to do that. That can be done in the public system. Uh, but uh, not being afraid to learn from uh, from wherever the lessons are about how we can deliver good care uh, within our public system is important to me and I know important to the health minister, but most importantly to British Columbians that need that care. Premier, thank you for your time today. Have yourself a good weekend. Yeah, you bet, Jess. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about temporary foreign workers. That term has a certain negative connotation because of our ongoing debate and conversation in this province in regards to labor, in regards to immigration sometimes. Whatever view people have of the term, we're certainly hiring a record number of temporary foreign workers. And now the latest federal data shows there were more than 32,000 people in BC under the federal government's temporary foreign workers program at the end of 2022. That's more than Ontario, which has more than twice BC's population. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the record number of temporary foreign workers here um, in BC is Susanna Quayle. She's a partner at Alavato Quayle and Roy and a member of the Board of Directors at the West Coast Domestic Workers Association. Susanna, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, This is a a very... um, uh, interesting topic. Sometimes uh, it can get the discourse can be uh, quite political. First and foremost, in regards to the record numbers, what do you hear? What is driving this? 
Well, I can speak to what's driving this from a worker perspective, not so much from the employer perspective, but certainly from the perspective of the migrant workers that, you know, we serve in our organization and that I work with as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, It's not new that workers from other countries want to come to Canada. And it's also not new that the priority that workers generally have is to get status in Canada and bring their families to Canada. And I highlight that because there's a bit of a mismatch between the way these programs are structured to only offer temporary and contingent status and the real aspirations of the people who are coming to Canada through these programs, which is to build a better life in this country. Mm-hmm. Now, of the, the 32,000 people uh, here in British Columbia, I, I'm going to assume most of them still remain uh, are workers in the farming sector. They're the biggest driver of this? You know, that's the largest single uh, sector, but I don't believe it's actually a majority. Um, it's been a little while since I looked at those numbers, but it's certainly a, a significant proportion of those workers. But there's also very significant numbers in hospitality, in the service sector, you know, anywhere from gas stations, fast food restaurants. And then, of course, in um, child care and caregiving is, remains a very significant uh, sector for temporary foreign workers in our province. I recall my... Uh Early days, I wouldn't say early days, but my days as a reporter watching the labor challenges from the 90s to the aughts, uh, I remember even speaking to the good friend, good people over there at the BC Federation of Labor, and they've all, always talked about this should be a start, and eventually there should be a pathway to citizenship. Simply, simple, uh, very similar to what you uh, what you were just saying here. Um, what is missing now that you that you have said and others have said that there should be a pathway to citizenship? What's holding that up? You know, that's a great question. And I wonder the same thing, because now more than ever, there is growing consensus that there has to be a pathway to permanent residency and ultimately citizenship for workers. And that's coming now from employer groups as well. It's not just workers and worker advocates and migrant rights advocates saying, you know, these programs are exploitative, they're abusive, we need permanent status. It's even employer groups saying this is not working. We don't need a worker for two years. We need a stable workforce on an ongoing basis. And the the federal government is just, for reasons I, I honestly can't comprehend, is just way behind the ball on solving this problem. Is it just because it's simple? I mean, you have a, a number, you have a program that has now worked indirectly in the sense that uh, it provides the immediate need for that season, for that moment, and it is constantly, you have more people coming in. Is it a, qu- a case of it's just too difficult to make the structural challenges and structural change that is required right now to get to that point where these people do have a pathway to citizenship? You know, I don't think it is or needs to be that difficult. And the federal government has recognized that this is a policy priority. So over the course of 2022, even prior to 2022, Hmm. you know, there's been all kinds of big announcements. There's been very strong indications from the federal government that they recognize they need more pathways to permanent residency and that they're committed to making that happen. But nothing is actually, no actual really meaningful initiatives to do that. And I think part of the problem is that for several years now, um, Every time there's something new, it's a new, a new pilot project or a new pathway for this very specific category of worker. You know, if you work in this specific field or you meet these very narrow criteria, you have a pathway. But we have yet to see any really uh, fundamental changes that just reorient what are we doing with these programs. And it's well past time that we reorient from we're bringing people in for one or two years at a time to we are allowing people to come to Canada, contribute here, contribute to the economy, contribute to society, be a part of their community, build their family here, and stay. And that shift is just, there's no indications that that's seriously happening. Do you think part of it might be just a bias that we, as you say, there's at times, depending on governments, but there's sometimes be, sometimes there's a focus on white-collar jobs or those with traditional university degrees, knowledge workers, as they call it sometimes, and they focus more on that, even though it might be a smaller number, and they keep programs like a temporary foreign worker program on to do the labor side, which is very difficult, backbreaking at times. You're out, out, uh, out and about during the day, hot weather, all those kind of things you've got to deal with when I'm talking about agricultural workers. Do you think there's a bit of a bias or a focus sometimes and energy by government directed towards white-collar knowledge jobs? 
Yeah, I, I would definitely agree that that's a big part of the problem. And, you know, when I mentioned there tend to be these kind of one-off, or even if they're permanent, they're very niche programs. There's, they're always rolling out, you know, new <laughs> programs and new opportunities if you meet uh, those kinds of, you know, if you're in those kinds of sectors and um, opportunities for what they call low-skilled work. But I'm sure anyone who's seen, you know, a child caregiver or a home support worker or, you know, even a fast food worker and during a busy lunch rush, these are not low-skilled jobs. But what's classified as low-skilled jobs, there is, a, there is much more limited opportunity. Is there a jurisdiction in the G7, G20 that does it well in regards to temporary foreign workers and, and more importantly, providing a pathway to citizenship? You know, that's a great question. I don't really know. I can't speak to the programs elsewhere. But what I do hear from, uh, from workers from migrant workers who come to Canada is that there is a, there's a persistent belief in, in many, um, you know, communities abroad that Canada is a place where you have these opportunities. Uh, and people are often disappointed to find how limited that really is. So, for example, lots of workers um, come to Canada after working in Dubai. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are t- obviously, you know, we hear it in the news, there's tons and tons of migrant workers in Dubai and there's no path in Dubai. Uh, There's very limited rights in Dubai. And so people often will come to Canada from Dubai uh, specifically because Canada is a country where it's rumored you can actually bring your family and start a life. And sometimes you can and often you can't. Yeah. Having been to Dubai many times when I used to travel into Afghanistan, if you want to hear about complaints about Dubai, just talk to any worker there because usually they're they're there for eight or nine month contract and then they have to go back to the country and then they reapply. So essentially you could be there for 15 years in Dubai, but every ninth or 10th month or eighth month, you got to go back to your uh, native country and apply again. So you're never really a citizen. You're always a temporary foreign worker and sometimes you're paid, paid below market rate or less. And so it's it's not um, it's a transient population. It is not a population that remains loyal or is vested in the politics and uh, and the culture of that country. And that's what you want at its core: people to be invested in Canada. Exactly. And we have so many workers coming here who want to be invested in Canada, who are really committed. You know, their dream for themselves and their family is to be a Canadian. And who are committing, you know, are contributing, sorry, to, to our society, who are raising our children, caring for our elders. And and yet we're not, you know, we're keeping those doors closed. It's really frustrating. Yeah. Susanna, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Well, the Vancouver Whitecaps open the 2023 season at BC Place uh, tomorrow against Real Salt Lake. It's a new season. It's a new team and a new sponsor as well as TELUS replaces Bell. So lots to talk about about the Vancouver Whitecaps, uh, of course, on the field, including and of course off the field with their jerseys and of course new sponsor. As I said, joining us now is our producer Ryan Lee Hall, who uh, is a soccer fan. We spent a lot of time talking about soccer during the World Cup. Uh, that was a lot of fun, but I am excited for the uh, Whitecaps new season. How about you, Ryan? Uh, you know what? Why wouldn't I be excited? It's a new season. It's a fresh start. It's a chance to you know make those playoffs and go as far as they possibly can and you know they have made a lot of changes as well on the field but I think the biggest change Jazz is Mm -hmm. uh, off the field as again fans may notice there's a new sponsor on team shirts where it used to be Bell and uh, now it's TELUS and it kind of got me thinking and you know I think a lot right Jazz (laughs) what about BC Place that's a stadium that's never had a sponsor they were close and you, it, it, we're, we're in an era of uh, it, you know sponsors or stadiums being renamed literally every decade, every five years. There's always changes. Yeah, right? those corporate sponsors. You know, that's sort of the trend that we're in in this day and age. But BC Place has still remained. So I try to you know take a little walk down memory lane and uh, kind of revisit that whole BC Place naming saga, where they were close to a name at one point. It looked like it was going to get done. And uh, it kind of got axed towards the end of, you know, that whole era there at the last minute. So why don't we just take a little look down memory lane here. Let's do that. The Vancouver Whitecaps are set to kick off their 2023 Major League Soccer season this Saturday against Real Salt Lake at BC Place Stadium. And for this year, you might notice something different about the team. Yes, there will be some new faces, but that's not what I'm getting at. Take a closer look at this year's Whitecaps jerseys and you will notice a different sponsor. Earlier this month, the Vancouver Whitecaps did announce an agreement with TELUS as a club's premier partner through 2027. And as part of that agreement, Whitecaps jerseys will now feature TELUS prominently printed across the chest. 
replacing the spot that Bell had occupied since the Cavs entered Major League Soccer in 2011. Now, where have we heard that before? Tellus and the Whitecaps. Keep in mind, the one thing that won't change this year is the name of the stadium, BC Place. In an era where almost every large-scale stadium in North America is attached with a corporate sponsor, the over 40-year-old BC Place still remains without one, but that hasn't been due to a lack of trying. After the newly renovated BC Place reopened back in 2011, the stage was set to have a large sign reading TELUS Park slapped across the side of the stadium all part of a 20-year, $40 million agreement. In fact, the TELUS Park signs had already been made. Global News has acquired a photo showing the massive TELUS Park sign, which had already been built and has been kept in storage for months. The cost to build the sign is estimated to be between $1 and $2 million. And in March of 2012, it all came crashing down, as the provincial government at the time decided against the naming of BC Place as TELUS Park. BC Place was to remain as BC Place. Then-Premier Christy Clark said the province was focusing on trying to get the best deal for the naming rights. We have responsibility to get the best deal that we can, not just get any deal, and uh, this wasn't the best deal. Now you also may remember that there was one strange hiccup in the whole deal, Bell Pitch. While the naming of the stadium might have been Tellus Park, it would have been known as Bell Pitch on Whitecaps match days. Or better yet, Bell Pitch Downtown or Bell Pitch at Tellus Park. We're in the very final stages of the negotiations for naming and we expect to have an announcement before, uh, before opening. The relationship soured soon after that announcement when the province insisted BC be added to the proposed Tellus Park name. Negotiations got downright nasty when the province allowed Tellus's arch competitor Bell to name the soccer field Bell Pitch Downtown when the Whitecaps play at Tellus Park. Right now calling it a bell pitch, eh? That's the name. Bell pitch uh, downtown, yes. So we can be calling it bell pitch downtown. Is that the name? It won't be bell pitch, no. Now, in 2019, the provincial government did give approval to the BC Pavilion Corp to look for a new official sponsored name for BC Play Stadium. And while a new naming deal has yet to be reached, it got me thinking, what would you name BC Place? Ah, that's a really good one. How about uh, I name it after Terry Fox or something like that? I mean, if if uh, if it was going to be Hero, I would do that. But if you're going to sell the rights, well, there's not a lot of corporations who can spend that kind of money, right? No, you know, I'm, I have no qualms with Telus Park or Telus Pitch or you know even BC. I am kind of a purist when it comes to stadiums. I like the non-sponsored side. You know, BC Place, the Pacific Coliseum. Uh, over in Europe, they do that a lot, right? Anfield, Old Trafford, all those kind of stadiums out there. But if you're going to go for one real sponsorship, what about Cactus Club Arena? <laughs> Cactus Club Park? No, we got enough of them. I don't want to hear that. No, I don't want that. I don't want that whatsoever. But uh, I, of course, heard my voice uh, in that report. Uh, when you mentioned it to me earlier today, uh, I was thinking about who was the source behind that. And of course, I'm not going to mention it, but it just it it, it just uh, the light bulb went off. But this was a big deal back then. Like the the the, the plans were all drawn up. The signs um, were made. Everything. Oh yeah, the the picture uh, ended up leaking. Uh, Telus Gardens, of course. Bell Bell, of course, said we're going to call it Bell Pitch, and it, it was. It was quite the story. It was a lead story for uh, weeks and weeks uh, in our province. And part of me says, you know, I'm okay. I think we're so used to now with corporations getting naming rights. It saves taxpayers a few dollars. Why not, right? Yeah, exactly. Staples Center, it's still a legendary arena. I know it's not called that anymore, cryptocurrency. But the Staples <laughs> Center, it became a legendary you know, stadium, and that's a sponsor slapped right on it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm I'm wishing the Whitecaps well. I know it's going to be snowing tomorrow for a little while, but uh, if you got tickets, uh, I think it should be okay. I hope you can make it, and I'm looking forward to the season as well. And um, we might add, uh, they've got Apple. Apple is now a sponsor, sponsor of the MLS as well. Yeah. Right? So their Apple games TV. Are, yeah, yeah, which is a very unique streaming service, buying rights to a mm-hmm. major sporting uh, league, uh, which is happening more and more. But it's very interesting that they're doing that as well. So good luck to the Whitecaps, and uh, hopefully you can make it out to the game as well. Thanks, Ryan. No problem. That's our Ryan LaHall, a producer here uh, on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. We're talking about the Vancouver Whitecaps uh, new look and, of course, the new season as well. And, yes, it is, uh, you know, whether you like the telcos or not, it's great to see a local telco that has uh, provided a lot of jobs uh, in the area around British Columbia for a very long time. So I'm very excited for TELUS uh, as well. Let's talk a little bit about uh, covid 
uh, and animals just for a moment, specifically um, uh, dogs and puppies. Uh, during uh, the height of COVID, I don't know how many times I heard from friends and neighbors uh, that they wanted to get a dog uh, for companionship and everybody was at home. Uh, and the amount of people who were on a wait list, a significant wait list in some case, the demand was so high. And of course, costs for these puppies uh, was going up significantly, doubling in costs in some cases. And this is all anecdotal based on things I just heard in and around uh, family and friends. Well, we're seeing the impact perhaps of COVID um, in regards to these animals. The SPCA says in just the past two months, there have been six individual breeders who have had to surrender their animals or have or have had them seized after not being able to sell them or care for them. Joining us now to talk a little bit about the impact of COVID and specifically um, these dogs and puppies is Eileen Drever. She's a senior protection officer and uh, head of stakeholder relations for the BC SPCA. Eileen, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good to hear your voice, by the way. I should say that. We've had a long history of knowing each other, of course, at the time at, at, at Global uh, and with your Adopt-A-Pet segment. So thank you so much for being on. Uh, first and foremost, uh, give me a sense of how um, significant or big this problem has become for the SPCA. Well, it's, it's huge, actually. Um, just two days ago, we had another 16, 16 dogs surrendered, 13 of which were puppies. And that was over uh, on the island. Um, this is going on all over the province. And the market has dropped off. People are returning to work. But the dogs continue to breed. And, you know, it's just indicative of, uh, makes me annoyed, but it's just indicative of people exploiting animals, all, all to make money. And um, they can't care for them properly. They're not providing the basics to them. And we've had to execute a number of warrants to remove animals from really bad situations. Uh, and are these breeders also bringing them to the SPC, SPCA in some cases as well? Yes. Some have recognized that they're in way over their head and they can't provide for them. So they have reached out to us. And I commend those individuals for doing that. Um, but again... You know, I think it's our fault. We were so desperate to get a puppy during COVID or a dog mm-hmm. and paying extortionate fees. Uh, mixed breed dogs were being sold for three, four, even $1,000, which to me was unbelievable. If, if any of your listeners are looking to purchase a puppy, a purebred puppy, check them out first. Make sure they're a member of the Canadian Kennel Club. You want to see the mum, you want to see the dad, you want to see the living conditions. Some of these, forgive me, sketchy people would meet an individual in a parking lot with a bunch of puppies. Well, you, you don't want Really? That. Oh, yes, yes. It's, it's pretty bad. And in my career, I haven't seen it this bad um, for like 40 years. What is the penalty for something like this? Okay, well, they're not regulated by the government. So anybody can just go and purchase a male and a female and breed them and, and make $10,000. Um, anyway, um, the penalty, if, if we were to recommend charges to Crown Council, the maximum penalty would be a $75,000 fine and or two years in prison and or a lifetime prohibition from owning animals. And, of course, that would be our goal is... They no longer own animals. I, I guess my question is, uh, have, have there been convictions, significant convictions in regards to scaring people who, who are involved in this? Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just racking my brain. I know there, uh, certainly the SBCA does its work. I know it's been in the news in many cases where you've gone in and not just saving dogs, but horses and many other animals. But have there been significant penalties actually handed to people? Absolutely not. No. No. And that's the problem. Um, and it's, it is a problem, and it's very disappointing. You know, these animals, they're sentient beings. Unfortunately, uh, the law does not recognize them as sentient beings, but they, but they are, and, um, and they're just being exploited constantly. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty heartbreaking. And, and if I could possibly ask any of your listeners who are interested in helping the SPCA, we're always looking for volunteers, and that could involve perhaps fostering a newborn litter of puppies for six to eight weeks, and then, and then you can turn them back over to us and we'll place them into their forever homes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we really enjoy people who fail at fostering because they end up keeping the animal, <laughs> which, is, which is wonderful. I like that. But then we're always looking for more volunteers. Um, another, another topic I'd like to bring up is the fact that the BCSPCA is not funded by the government. We receive no funding. We rely on, on people like your listeners yeah. to donate to enable us to protect animals in British Columbia. Is there, uh, and I'll, we'll get back to the at the end in regards to where they can donate and where they can go for more information in regards to fostering. Are there a particular breed of dogs that people um, really like that are fashionable? I hate to use that term fashionable, but to a certain degree it is. Are there particular breeds that people are looking for in regards to adoption or walking away from when they were, you know, in the middle of COVID, I can understand specific dogs, and now they're walking away from them. Are there specific breeds that people like? Not really, Jazz, not really. Um, it was amazing to see all of these. Well, for example, we had a whole bunch of golden retrievers um, surrendered to us. We had Australian shepherds. Um, the smaller dogs we don't get as often. Having said that, I'm looking at a photograph of a 16-year-old Havanese um, available for adoption over in Vancouver Island, 16 years old, and she's an old-timer. She's not going to last very long, unfortunately, because she's old. But we would love to send her off into her forever home and just live her life out peacefully. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I do, we don't have a, a dog at our home, and I didn't grow up with, with, with a dog, but my wife did, and I've always I've wanted one, obviously, uh, in the last little while. And, and my wife reminds me, she goes, you have a very busy life until you can commit to this animal in, in a way, and I believe I can, but at the same time, you can commit the time that's required. And she grew up with uh, with, with uh, dogs, so she knew the work that goes into it. And so I, we've held off just because of a busy life. Uh, and But I think partially, I, I think people also have to remind themselves as to how busy they need to be and the commitment that is required for this animal. Uh, and that's part of the issue too, isn't it? Maybe I'm wrong, but correct me if I'm wrong. That's part of the issue too, is you gotta have, you got to know whether you have enough time for these animals. Like a child, frankly, um, cats are a wee bit more independent. But yes, dogs, it, and it is a lifelong commitment. And you can expect a dog with any luck will last until they're sixteen or seventeen years old. So you need to, uh, if you're going away, you need to make arrangements. If you can't take your dog with you, it is a lifelong commitment. And you know, um, SPCA employees are very fortunate because we get to bring our our, our friends with us to work. So not every. <laughs> Every, every, actually, everybody should have that opportunity. Unfortunately, that's never going to happen. But you do have to make arrangements if you do have are living a, a busy life. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we do that here at CKNW as well. I know Jill Bennett sometimes brings uh, her dog in and uh, most well-behaved dog I've ever seen. He'll sometimes be just in the studio nice and quiet, not bothering anybody. So it's uh, absolutely wonderful. Now, before we go, uh, where can people learn about uh, being a foster parent to one of these uh, dogs? And number one, and number two, where can they donate as well? Well, if it, just go online to uh, spca.bc.ca and you can donate online. You can look, check out the animals available for adoption and you'll see all the different volunteering opportunities we have. Eileen, thank you so much for your time today. Great to hear your voice. Lovely to speak with you. Thank you so much. All right. That is Eileen Drever. She is a Senior Protection Officer and state, Head of Stakeholder Relations for the BCSPCA. We're talking about the fact that um, some of these breeders looking to make fast money uh, during the pandemic and they decided to breed puppies. Well, you know you know what's going to happen be, because people get busy. And they, after COVID, um, a lot of folks aren't adopting uh, these animals. And as Eileen said, these people do not have any uh, credentials. They're not uh, recognize in any way and more and more a lot of these breeders have had to surrender their animals or have them seized by the BCSBCA as well and as Eileen said if you wish to uh, foster uh, one of these um, puppies and dogs uh, go to spca.bc.ca that SP, that's spca.bc.ca or if you donate to the organization as well they do wonderful work and it's really uh, just sad to hear about these seizures uh, in a post-COVID environment where people are getting back to their lives and not many of them are adopting as they once did. And there's so many breeders that, I guess, came out of the woodwork and uh, were doing what they're doing. As she said, some of them actually selling these puppies uh, in parking lots. We've had another week of opinions, experts, open line wisdom and hot takes. It's that time to bring together our dynamic duo to help explain the week that was. It's time for The Wrap. 
Goodbye now. Is over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is the wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's. Well, this week we asked the question why do Vancouverites have a reputation of not being friendly and what job will artificial intelligence take over? Joining us today is our regular rap panel. Leah Halive is a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. Guten Tag. Guten Tag, indeed. Well, (laughs) let's start with our first segment in regards to Vancouverites having a reputation of not being friendly. Now, the reason we asked this question is... What uh, do you mean we're not friendly? There you go. Yeah, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? Well, Phil Figueredo (laughs) is a producer here, and earlier this week he told us uh, of an incident that occurred uh, over the weekend. Uh, He was on social media, on Twitter, not the friendliest place in the world, but he (laughs) read a tweet uh, from a stranger who said... They needed help to move a goldfish tank in and around Gastown. Now, most people would just say, nah, we're not going to do a thing. No way. Well, he went and helped that person move that goldfish Aww. tank. And then Aww. the person ended up, yeah. uh, was working, had a client who was a shoemaker, Vessi, which I understand is a very hip and happening oh, uh, shoemaker. Cool. Yes. Cool. Uh, he got some uh, he got some sneakers from them for, in regards to them just saying thank wow. you for doing the neighborly thing. Nice. Take a listen to Phil here. I'm a longtime Canucks Twitter user and uh, someone that I've been following for a long time. I've interacted with a bunch. He was like, hey, uh, is anyone available for like half an hour? I just need to move this fish tank. I'll go and meet up with you. I'm not too far away. So I trot on over, help him move the fish tank into where it's going, ask him all about it. Turns out he works for a uh, local waterproof shoe company and uh, decided as a thank you for for helping out for the 10 minutes that I was there that he would set me up with a bunch of these shoes out of the kindness of his heart and didn't charge me for them and just said, hey, thanks for taking some time to help me out. Now that's Phil being a wonderful neighbor, which some would argue is very rare sometimes here in Vancouver. Now you go to social media, of course, and mention the question, is Vancouver friendly? This is the kind of response you generally get. This whole people think Vancouver is like Canadians are really nice. Yeah, like people in Saskatoon are really nice, but like Vancouver is not like. No, we're not nice. It's not nice at all. Absolutely not. It's disgusting. It's like uh, when I was living in Dallas, people are 15 times nicer. People would let me borrow their cars. I barely know them. People would give me a place to stay if I didn't. I didn't need it, but they would <laughs> way nicer. Southern house, Southern hospitality. <laughs> Why better? Yeah, I like it, dude. Dude, maybe it's the rain. I don't know. People get depressed here. I'm sad. It's raining. It's rain, and maybe it's a bit of the snow this weekend. And for I don't know, Leah, what, your thoughts on this? And you know, you don't have to agree with these two gentlemen uh, on, on on TikTok there, but there's a lot of folks who say it's hard to make friends in Vancouver because people aren't that friendly. What do you What do you think? I I hear that from friends that I know that have moved here from other countries and from other parts of the province. They say the same thing. It's so hard to make friends here. They say everybody's pretty pleasant, but not friendly. I think maybe because we have such a beautiful resources here, the outdoors, like skiing, lakes, oceans, that Vancouverites are just busy. We're busy outside, right? So they don't take time to make friends. I think everybody's got somewhere to go here, somewhere to be. Like if you're walking downtown, no one makes eye contact. (laughs) Like No one looks at you. Everybody's just headstrong going somewhere where they've got to go and that's it. Nobody's like, hi, hi. So I get it. I understand it. I mean, if I was to move here, I would think the same thing walking around being like, wow, this is a cold, cold city. People are not friendly. People are friendly enough, but that's it. No one wants to give too much here. I think it's sad. Yeah. But at the same time, one could argue, look, Calgary's got some nice places to to visit. They got lots of nature there. They're friendlier there. They're friendlier. Exactly. So what do you think? I mean, you meet a lot of folks here in the real estate business. Uh, Part of your business is people skills, right? You (laughs) meet different types of clubs. Why are we not friendly? It's funny. I I actually do go out of my way to smile at people and engage people, but I've also, I know that that is, I know that is hard to believe, but they run away. I'm I'm also, I'm also, it's, I've kind of got like a, a, the monkey on my back of people still remember me from the morning news. I've like literally heard, you know, like, Oh, I saw Sarah Daniels and she got a frown. I mean, like it can bite back at you. Right. So I try to generally like get forth what, we give give out. I mean, I run the, a, a a very large Facebook group that I started like three and a half years ago on a on a lark. We've got thirty five thousand members Whoa. in the South Surrey White Rock area, and it's been for the most part great. And I have to say that I was really proud of the group as a whole because 
when we had like an influx of Ukrainian refugees, Somalian refugees, all that kind of stuff, people have reached out when they've, you know, is there anything we can do? They've helped people with like clothing and all that. I think it's a Canadian mm -hmm. thing to a certain extent that there is a reticence to put themselves out there. But if somebody approaches them, they'll be very pleasant and polite. I don't necessarily think it is our default. I mean, Mer Americans tend to be a lot more boisterous and Canadians are not necessarily that way. I'm an outlier because everybody knows me, right? I'm like, hey, how, how are you? Wah, wah, wah. You know, but, uh, but, <laughs> maybe but that's... It's, maybe it's that's a big city me. thing. Maybe it's a big city thing. I mean, uh, Toronto mm -hmm. may be accused of that as well, but if you go to, let's say, Saskatchewan or smaller communities in Canada, perhaps they're just friendlier. Maybe that might be it, Leah. You, you know yeah, everybody but in the it, town. People aren't super friendly here in White Rock either. So, you know what I mean? You walk down the beach and like, not everybody's saying hi to you. Everybody's just walking around. So I, I don't I know if it's say, a big city issue. I have to say, we, Lee and I live in the same vicinity. I live in the Ocean yeah. Park area of South Surrey. In my little neighborhood, everybody knows everybody. We had like Christmas parties and people coming Aww. over and all that. But I used to live in East Beach. And the funny thing about East Beach, if anybody is familiar with in the area, White the Rock. Yeah, totally in White Rock, different. the houses are close together, and yet nobody like seems to Knows interact. each other. So it really, <laughs> it really depends. I mean, like, of course, on the flip side of that, I found out that apparently everybody knew who I was, which was, you know, a little bit of a nightmare. But <laughs> that kind of follows you around, right? So. Well, I would have to agree. I used to live in East Beach as well at one point uh, many years oh. ago, and uh, and you're right. The neighbors don't. They're not. Maybe it's there's there's more retirees out there. Yeah, for some reason. But I mean, when you talk to them, they're great. But nobody goes out of their way. So I think I totally no. Agree if you were carrying a, a a fish. Like a fish tank, no one was helping you, Jazz. You no. would have been trying to drag it out. No you one's going to help getting, you. They'll walk by you. You are not getting free sneakers, I'll tell you that much. That's no. yeah. for sure. It depends. I really think it depends on where you are. And, and you do have to make an effort. And a lot of people, I mean, are a little bit more reticent. I find Canadians in general, like I said, a little bit more reticent. But that doesn't mean that people, like I said, I mean, we had um, Ukrainians that were arriving in, in the area um, and were in need of, you know, bedding and all that kind of stuff and people on this facebook group i run were undeniably like just everybody reaching out to help extending a hand and so they we may not do it necessarily in the most overt ways but yeah. People will rise. Well, to the giving, I feel. maybe not friendly. Yeah, giving. we're giving. We'll but unless if, if you say, let's go for a coffee. Oh, no, I'm kind of busy there. No, no, I'm busy. <laughs> yeah, there you yeah, go. Don't bug me. I'm That's moving right. a fish tank. Coming up next, what <laughs> industries could you see AI like chat GPT taking over? That's next. Hey, welcome back to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Before we get back to our rap panel, I just want to let you know that DoorDash has, in the last half hour or so, activated its severe weather protocol and suspended operations in Vancouver and parts of eastern Vancouver Island. Uh, it's a precautionary measure uh, due to the severe uh, winter uh, storm that is expected uh, tomorrow. The deliveries, uh, delivery will be suspended uh, from the evening of Saturday, February 25th, so tomorrow to morning, uh, Sunday morning. So that'll be in North Vancouver, Vancouver, Coquitlam, throughout the um, Metro Vancouver area, but also including uh, Squamish, Nanaimo, Ladysmith, Duncan, Victoria, Port Alberni, Courtney, Powell River, and Campbell River as well. So there you go. So if you're a DoorDash customer, you may have to, you know, stay at home and cook yourself just for the night for uh, 10 to 30 centimeters of snow. The whole city does uh, shut down. We, of course, are speaking to our rap panel, Leah Halive and Sarah Daniels. Uh, let's talk a little bit about ChatGPT. And if you don't know what that is, um, it's basically artificial intelligence that can understand and generate natural language text. What does that mean? Well, you can go to ChatGPT and say, um, hey, ChatGPT, can you write me a 500-word essay on trees? They will do it, and they will have all the source and every source material. So you can think about legal documents, think about news stories, pick any industry, and basically this computer has all the knowledge of the world and can write whatever you ask it to do. Right down to if I wanted to write a radio uh, segment as well. So the impact would be significant. Now, you would think, okay, radio talk show hosts and people working in radio um, would be secure. Well, we found out that today that one of our largest uh, broadcasting companies are now looking at something called Radio GPT, where the computer oh actually God. replaces radio hosts. Take a listen. Voice you hear on Radio GPT is 100% AI. Discovered and delivered in real time on Radio GPT. Live, made locally in Springfield, and 100% voiced and powered by AI. This is Radio GPT. 
That's a computer speaking, by the way. And wow. all they okay. do, and Hold then on. they, and then they source all the social media and see whatever's trending in your community, and they will take that information and talk about it, and then throw to a song. So, Hold on. Yeah. I have one thing to say. I have one thing to say, and that is, open the pod bay doors, hell. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. I mean, this is oh 2001: yep. A Space Odyssey yeah. coming to life. I mean. I'm I'm very easily replaceable. Who are we kidding? But come on, people, <laughs> this is bonkers. No, this and then it and, turns and, around and kills us. Oh, That's exactly. And yeah. and uh, and I'm not joking here, folks. This is available on, online, and wow. a major broadcasting company. I won't mention their name. Rogers is now testing wow. this out. Uh, it, came, it was written. There was an article on it today. They're testing wow. it out. This is what's coming. Like it, you, I'm, you, I'm actually, no, I mean, they're not local. Like, I don't understand this. They're not even human. You no. know, Lisa, you I'm going to say right now, Lisa Laflamme right now is just shaking her head and hoping that she got a really good <laughs> severance package. Holy moly. Yeah, it's you can just you can go to Radio GPT, just Google it. It's there. Remember and Max sad. Headroom? That's really sad. Remember Max Headroom? Max Headroom is coming to life. Oh my. Well, what are we going to do as human beings? What are they just government just pay us a, a We're going to have no a, jobs. A minimum salary. We just stay at home and pretend it's just covid. Like what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> just there's, exist, there's a point right? where there's a point where like literally, you know, the advances of science and all this kind of stuff. It, people need to as while we still can before the computers take over. Make some, conscious, make some conscious decisions about, is this going to be helpful or not? Because now, I mean, this whole AI stuff, they have actually, you know, made it so that they've got videos where it looks like, you know, uh, uh, Obama, for instance, is is having a conversation. Deep saying, fakes. Yeah, all these are deep, kind of, like, fakes. These yeah. deep fakes, right? Yeah. And I mean, let's look at Fox News. I mean, that is like fake, you know, they're that's just fake. fakes they're come just to fake. life. But now, I mean, they're like, you know, you've got people in their information silos. They'll start really believing this stuff. It's mm-hmm. only going to get worse if we let it propagate. No, exactly. Yeah. And right and now, when it starts to think on its own, that's when it shuts yeah. down um, our banking system, our power grids, and we die. What so if, well, hey, if, if, if you haven't <laughs> studied as a student in your university, you can just go to ChatGPT and write me, you know, you a, a five-page essay uh, on Upper Canada uh, from in the 1800s. Oh it's done, and it's fully sourced, and you just hand that in. You've done nothing. Do people really nothing, want their yeah. doctors doing like? Do people oh, yeah. really yeah, want do you their want doctors surgery? doing all this? Right? By AI. <laughs> I'm going to be okay. My my pilot, my pilot passed. I will be waiting in line for exactly. That. Could you imagine a pilot using Chat GPT? Oh my God! How That's, do I fly this? I a know. Doctor, a doctor, a lawyer. Oh. I mean, anything. It's it is a scary world. Uh, I hope we're, we're doing this to ourselves. That's what we're doing. We are the arbiters of our own demise. We are I know. literally the arbiters. Thanks, of our Elon own Musk. Demise. I'm. It's snowing. I'm going to cocoon all week. I'm just going to stay home. Put on some Netflix. Yeah. And you can't not get DoorDash. That's right. Yeah. There's so, Uber Eats for everyone. <laughs> Uber Eats for everyone. Ladies, <laughs> ladies, thanks for your time. Have a wonderful weekend. You guys okay. too. All right. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.